Okay, welcome back to Plato's Cave. With me today, I have Garrett Pendergraft. Uh, Garrett is a professor of philosophy at the Seaver College at Pepperdine University, uh, and he has written a really interesting book from what I've read of it so far. It's called Free Will and Human Agency, 50 Puzzles, Paradoxes, and Thought Experiments, which will be uh, released in just a very short time in July of 2022. So Garrett, thanks for uh, talking to me. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate your interest in the book. Yeah, it looks at you gave me the kind of bootlegged version of it. Um, and it looks I don't know how long the final book will actually be. You know, I've got it kind of printed out from the PDF. But yeah, um, honestly, it seems like I was, you know, reviewing uh, like a few chapters besides the ones that we're going to talk about. And um, it looks like an amazing kind of introductory book if you're either getting into or maybe sort of starting to advance like within the um, free will and moral responsibility topic. How, how long is the final copy going to be? Yeah, so the the final manuscript was, I think, about 75,000 words. Uh, so between the 50 chapters, um, each one is um, anywhere from 1,000, maybe 1,100 words to about 1,500 words. A couple went a little bit over that. So um, yeah, we tried to, uh, we were trying to make it a um, an engaging introduction to the field sort of a, um, I don't know, like a bottom-up introduction mm -hmm. where you just sort of um, dive right into some of these examples and thought experiments and um, and not, you know, not go into too much detail about them, but um, just just enough to get a sense of the of the issues and how they intersect with some of the contemporary conversations um, and then and then kind of move on to the next one. So yeah, it's kind of a, it, relatively speaking, kind of a fast-moving uh, book, but um, yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, and it, it has a really um, cool and I think unique setup. I haven't really read a book like this where you sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, for each each of the 50 uh, either, you know, paradoxes or puzzles or thought experiments, you kind of like have a, a block page or two where you introduce the idea or the puzzle or whatever. And then um, you also provide several responses to it and then, you know, recommended readings to kind of follow up on, which is, it's actually really cool because you get to kind of just, you know, if you read through the book, you can pick out like what areas or, or, you know, kind of individual problems you find interesting. And then it's just like, okay, bam, here's three or four papers to continue reading. I, I really like that idea. Yeah, no, thanks. That's definitely the goal. And that's something that the publisher that Rutledge is trying to um, do with this, with this series is um, provide something that's useful for um, you know, maybe a senior seminar at the undergraduate level, but could also be useful even at the graduate level or even someone who's just trying to kind of get a lay of the land after having worked in a different field. Um, the, uh, because, you know, there's, if you're, if you are, if you're familiar with a thought experiment already, you can just sort of uh, gloss over the setup um, and then you can look and see some of the main responses to it in the literature. Uh, and then the recommended reading is, um, yeah, it's, I, I think a really valuable part of, um, well, being a student is having solid, um, but also limited recommendations for sort of what to read next. Um, you know, it's nice to have this huge annotated bibliography, but if you're kind of getting started, it's like, well, here's a hundred different sources. I'm not sure which one to start with. Do I start with the most recent, the oldest, or um, do I try to look at citation numbers? And so I think having a handful, I think it ends up being, uh, usually it's about three, I think maybe in a couple chapters, there's six recommended reading um, uh, pieces. Uh, sometimes it's a recommended uh, viewing uh, or listening. Uh, so a movie or maybe a podcast episode, but um, yeah, that's the goal is to, is for 
for those who, if, if a particular chapter is really engaging or exciting, then the uh, the reader can um, immediately move on to read the next thing. And then from there kind of open up and, and pursue uh, pursue the topic as they want. And then also there's a lot of cross references too, because the chapters are so short, it's going to be some overlap and there's a, there's several issues that kind of get uh, get brought up in a couple of different chapters. Um, and so that's something too, where you can kind of follow follow a train through the book and bounce around chapters if you'd like. Mm, yeah. We were talking uh, before recording about sort of getting into philosophy and neither one of us had an underground, uh, an undergrad background in uh, philosophy. So I'm curious what, uh, what drew you to philosophy generally, but also specifically to agency philosophy of action, free will. Yeah. So um, yeah, my undergraduate degree was in computer science. I, uh, I wanted to work in visual effects uh, in the film <laughs> industry, uh, which I did for a few years and enjoyed it. Uh, it was great, but um, I had been, uh, as I was finishing up my undergrad, I'd become more interested primarily in issues around philosophy of religion and philosophical theology uh, and those kinds of questions. And I was, you know, that was still sort of always in the back of my mind. I was doing some reading on the side and uh, ran into a, a master's program that I could do part-time while I was working full-time. And, um, and then, um, and then actually sort of swapped that and stayed working part-time while I switched over to full-time graduate school and, you know, the rest is history. But um, yeah, I think it was really just um, a lot of it has to do with just the issues in philosophy religion that I was interested in. A lot of them have to do with, um, well, obviously arguments for and against God's existence, but also to questions about how some of the theological doctrines, the, the traditional ones sort of interact with kind of our common sense view of ourselves as human creatures. Uh, and so a lot of that is really just, um, just touches upon agency. Uh, another another area that, that is obviously relevant there is philosophy of mind. Um, and as, um, you know, I just kind of gravitated towards some of the questions about free will and more responsibility. And the um, I really appreciated the kind of the tensions that were inherent in, in uh, some of these doctrines. And of course, they show up in theology, but they also show up in science, uh, uh, whether it's the hard sciences or the social sciences. Um, and so that that kind of, um, you know, our best science or our best theology tells us one thing, but our common sense and maybe some of our philosophical reasoning tells us another, um, throw in some divine revelation with some additional confounding elements. And you get, um, yeah, you get a lot of really interesting puzzles and intentions. Uh, so that's always been, it's always drawn me in. Um, I actually, um, as we were briefly discussing, I was studying um, in graduate school to uh, more, more, more toward epistemology. Um, I, I was trying to think of a way to, to kind of combine my interests in epistemology and agency for a dissertation, um, but ended up um, transferring graduate schools. And then, the, you know, the place I ended up, UC Riverside was um, such a, such a good place to do agency that I just kind of um, put all my focus in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, that, I really relate to that in a lot of ways because it's such a, um, I don't know, it, it's like such a, an area of philosophy with um, so much gravity. Like you always get just kind of sucked back into that area and it flares up when discussing other areas of philosophy. Um, so the chapters that we're going to be talking about are chapters one, six, and eight of the book. And I picked those out. Uh, just because, I mean, you know, obviously the whole book seems extremely interesting, but I'm actually, I've been doing some reading 
kind of summer reading about existentialism generally, and these were part of the subsection that focused on sources of existential angst. So I figured that these would be kind of, you know, related to questions that were percolating at the the top of my mind. So um, yeah. I guess we can kind of move through them one at a time. Uh, the first chapter is called The Garden of Forking Paths, which uh, is a callback to Borges's great short story. If people haven't read it, they absolutely should. Um, and in, in that story, I guess, uh, Borges kind of introduces this idea. And, you know, this is in the zeitgeist to a large extent, this idea that we sort of have, you know, paths that are laid out before us that that are, are multitudinous and branching, and we can choose one of those. And when we choose one, you know, Borges says we kind of sever the possibilities of going into any of the other ones. Um, so you introduce this as, if I'm correct, sort of a, well, it's at least a psychological way to think about free will, but also a metaphysical one, right? Yeah, right. Um, and by the way, it was great to, uh, I had was very familiar with, with this notion um, once I once it came to mind, uh, the garden, the garden of forking paths, you know, Borges' notion. Um, and once, once it sort of came to mind, it was clear this has to be the way to start the book. It's just such the common sense view. Um, and that's really, uh, as you mentioned, that is the, that's the idea is that um, we, I, I think most people, not, not everyone, but most people, if they sort of had to come up with uh, a metaphor, it would be something like this, or if they were given a lineup of metaphors, they would gravitate toward the, the forking paths metaphor. Um, and yeah, so it's the, you know, I'd say a lot of, you know, and, and I think, um, I think it was John Martin Fisher who kind of brought the Borges idea into, um, into the literature as, um, as the common sense view as a starting point, you know, and, and then, um, and yeah, I think, uh, and a lot of people are happy to not just view that as the way we see our own choices, um, from an internal perspective, but also as just the way the world is set up, um, you know, they, they uh, a lot of times people talk about free will as having uh, more than one future that's physically possible, um, you know, given given your past and laws of nature or mm-hmm. things like that. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a um, a common sense view. And then there are a lot of, you know, and this is, of course, primarily an incompatibilist picture. Um, but for most, uh, you know, a lot of philosophers are happy to just work out the metaphysical details of, of how this forking paths metaphor might might work. Uh, that's kind of how they approach it. Um, and others will want to resist that as being um, uh, an actual sort of one-to-one correspondence between what what we do and uh, or, or what we perceive and what actually happens out there. Um, and so that's that's part of the interest. I think is just um, really thinking about um, how far we can take this picture. Um, as you know, as I mentioned, the chapter of Anywagon acknowledges that it's just a picture doesn't, you know, just like, um, you know, so it sort of touches brief, it kind of touches in, in it hints at some of these questions between um, realism and anti-realism and science and, and stuff like that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely, you know, whenever you first kind of read that, I, I remember even assignments in early grade school, maybe like fourth or fifth grade or whatever. And there would, you know, it would literally be like, you know, kind of writing assignments where you would talk about, you know, kind of imagine a possible course for your life. And even, you know, at such a young age, it's like, it's very intuitive to think of, okay, you know, it's, it's just like how we think about, you know, planning a career, like planning a life, planning, whatever there's, you know, you're like, you're beginning to kind of like advance through school or whatever. And it seems like you could go into any number of paths. So those are open to you in some sense. And then you kind of have to choose the path that you go down. Um, And 
it does, it definitely strikes me as a very psychologically accurate um, picture, I guess. So the one thing that, um, you know, cause, cause um, Fisher talks about guidance control and regulative control. And I was sort of thinking about that in the context of, of the past. And I mean, if you buy, you know, if you sort of buy determinism generally, it does seem as though, you know, you weren't, you weren't really free to do otherwise in some sense where, you know, the path that you choose, it's, it's sort of like you only get to choose one path. Right. Mm -hmm. But you do, I mean, so you talk about, you know, Robert Kane says that like this picture of the world, um, psychologically speaking, almost has to be integral to what it means to be a person. Almost, you, you almost have to, I don't like this phrasing necessarily, but you almost have to live as if more than one path is open to you. Um, and, you know, to, to fail to sort of make a choice in any scenario is a choice itself. So it seems like no matter what, you know, you, you know, you, you said it's kind of, um, is amenable to an incompatibilist reading. And that seems definitely true on a metaphysical level. But I also think that on a psychological level, this is just sort of how you have to think about things because you don't know the future in some sense. Yeah, no, I think one way to view the situation is to look at the psychological perspective, um, which really is, I, I think, essential to, to personhood and to the way we view ourselves. You can kind of look at that as the data. Uh, and so the data, um, the data set is the set of all of our deliberative um, interactions, deliberative engagements, all the moments in which we are sort of projecting forward and and directing ourselves in, in one of, of multiple uh, directions down one of, of multiple different paths. Uh, and so I think that's the, that we, the, the sort of phenomenology of agency, uh, some have called it, that's, that's the data. Uh, and we can't, yeah, I, I don't think it's possible, at least, um, of course, this, this touches on chapter six as well, but in the grand, or, or uh, at least typically we have to see things as open um, in order to kind of put ourselves in the right frame of mind to make a choice. Um, and, um, and then the question is just, all right, well, how do we explain that data? And there's one sense in which the simplest explanation is that, well, the reason why it seems like we have these multiple paths open to us is because we actually do in some sense. Um, and, and then, so that's the, that's kind of the libertarian uh, explanation of the data, but there are definitely compatibilist explanations of the data that, um, you know, that are, are, I guess, minimalist in a different way. Um, and they say, well, we, you know, we can consistent with various kinds of, of scientific theories or even theological doctrines, we can, we can still undertake this kind of deliberation and this kind of choice-making, um, even if, Strictly speaking, the future isn't open in a way that it seems to be, uh, and so yeah, I think you're exactly right that the our perception of traversing this garden path is pretty much essential to to personhood and to, and to, certainly to agency. Um, and and the question is just um, given that we do perceive things that way, and that's kind of how we operate. Um, how do we explain that? And does our explanation have to uh, respect that metaphor fully, or can it sort of, you know, allow for a little bit of slippage maybe between what's actually going on? Um, you know, I think, I think you can obviously straightforward explanations are great. Um, on the other hand, there's certain, I think we've, we've all sort of experienced, um, as philosophers, but also just as regular people that 
perception can be misleading. Uh, and so I think that there's, you know, there's, there's lots to latch onto if you're trying to make the case for either explanation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, it made me think, so I had just finished reading Sartre's work about, you know, this sort of like, he, he talks about, there's almost this unlimited in some sense, he, you know, Sartre thinks that we have like a deep agency mm -hmm. in the world and kind of, I mean, you know, tabling that for a second, it, it did, you know, just reading him, it made me think about how many paths are actually kind of genuinely open to you in the sense that they're not precluded by the laws of physics or they're not kind of practically impossible. So, you know, I mean, it, there's like a very basic retort that someone could have to the libertarian. It's like, okay, well, why don't you just choose to fly? Well, that's an, obviously libertarians aren't, as, aren't asserting that humans, if they just had enough willpower could just levitate or whatever. Right. right. But it's, it's, it's actually true though, that like when you're in any given situation, there are like, there are just way more possible courses of action than we tend to um, believe. Like, we are having this conversation right now, and the normal thing to do is continue having the conversation. But it's literally open to me to just move the mouse and click end the call if I wanted to, right? And it's also, you know, I can just like, I could do anything. I could do any number of things right now. And, um, you know, it does It does seem like uh, there, there is a, um, it, I don't know, it just strikes me that the there's kind of popularizers of incompatibilism, um, hard determinists specifically, like not philosophers, but kind of general, like maybe it's like a Jerry coin ish type of person mm -hmm. who, um, definitely seem to, uh, you know, it's not that they don't believe that that's the case, but they definitely seem to under highlight it, uh, when they're talking about things, because, you know, even if you couldn't have done otherwise, um, that really plays almost no role in sort of forward looking psychological approaches, I guess. Um, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it kind of reminds me of, of one of the other chapters, which has to do with whether, um, whether incompatibilism or compatibilism is sort of the, the default or the intuitive perspective. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, and there's, this is one that the experimental philosophers haven't, uh, haven't decided yet, or they haven't come to <laughs> an agreement. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's been, there's been some good progress and some interesting developments on that question. I think that the, the jury's still out on it, but, uh, but I think it is relevant to, um, yeah, a lot of times the, a lot of times those who, especially those who deny free will in sort of a, I don't know, a contemptuous or sneering kind of way. Um, not saying that, you know, I'm not attributing that view to any particular individual, but there's definitely, a, you know, I would say the hard determinists who are come to their determinism, maybe more uh, on the basis of science as opposed to philosophy, um, you know, can be a little bit um, sneering in their rejection of, of free will. And, and a lot of times it's because they view it as this, um, this magical, ability that we all think we have or something. And so they want to mm. disabuse the benighted masses of, of their <laughs> notions of free will. Um, and, you know, and I think, but then when you, um, but then when you give the average person, uh, usually these are college students. Um, so I don't know how average college students are, but you give, you give this, these people, 
um, little vignettes that are just you know ordinary actions and and, and they're described as being completely caused or mm. there's sort of some sort of rollbacks and replay scenario where the same thing happens over and over again um you know they still uh at least you know in in some, a lot of the studies they still tend to judge that the person was responsible um whether the action was positive or negative or, or neutral uh and again there's there there are debunking explanations of this so that's not just to settle the issue about what the sort of the intuitive view and maybe in the end it doesn't really matter what the intuitive view is maybe there is no intuitive view um but uh yeah i think um there i think that's one one issue or one intriguing facet of this whole debate as you mentioned it comes up in so many different contexts and the way you know if we're at like the our answer to the question, uh, a free will relevant question or a more responsibility relevant question is really going to depend on, on the other details of the context. It's going to depend on what sorts of things are salient. Um, it's going to depend on, you know, kind of how we're, are we, are we being forced to think of the kaleidoscope of possibilities that accompany every second, or are we just kind of thinking about big picture decisions that change the course of our life? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really, um, that's part of the, the interest, uh, I think, in the issue is just that um, there's so many legitimate ways of conceiving of, uh, of, of a free choice and of what it means to have alternatives and of what it means to have some sort of leeway among those alternatives. And really, you know, so you have to be very careful. And that's one reason why it's helpful to look at a bunch of different cases and thought experiments, just because depending on how you set it up, um, you can change one thing and it can really influence our perception of, of whether or not this individual is is free or responsible or blameworthy or or what have you mm -hmm. yeah i i've definitely been persuaded to the well i i do so i do think that um the lay intuition or sort of the pre-philosophical intuition i i do think it skews libertarian in the sense that like when when you just have conversations with people i, I feel like there is an intrinsic idea there that sort of metaphysically people really could have done otherwise it's not it's not sort of spelled out in any great detail um but it also seems like i mean i, I you know i've kind of been persuaded by some of susan wolf's work um but also galen strassen's that it's actually like not a i don't even think that libertarian free will is is a, like a, a free will worth wanting to use dennett's term um where it seems like, you know, it's just, it's this sort of like desire to kind of have your cake and eat it too, in the sense that you want to, uh, you know, kind of act as you are, act within your character, um, but also be free to choose anything. And those two, you know, I think, you know, Wolf puts it in one of her papers, it's just like, you know, you're, you're if you actually do desire, like, contra-causal free will, you almost are desiring something incoherent where you want to love your wife, but be free to also not love her. And it's just sort of like, why, why, why is that a freedom worth wanting? So I, I almost, I, you know, I almost think that the whole debate about, I mean, this is obviously annoying to libertarians, but I just don't think that that is the interesting part of the debate there. It's sort of what, what types of local agency or in Fisher's view, um, guidance control do we really have and sort of what situations are more corruptive of that or not? Yeah, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think there is a really important and fundamental question, which is sort of what, what is it that you, that you really want here? Um, and obviously, 
there's no guarantee that what you want is the way things are going to be. But, um, but I, I do think that's a useful exercise is to sort of, is to take a particular conception of free will, sort of dial it up to 11 and just ask, okay, are we in a better spot now? Um, and, uh, or, or is there something sort of shocking or horrific about that? And that's kind of part, you know, that's part of what's going on in, um, I guess it's chapter 25 when it, which is considering these two conceptions, you know, there's the ability to do otherwise, uh, the more choices, the better. Um, and then there's, uh, which is, I think, uh, a natural view, um, as, as you said, and as, as Wolf says, there's maybe something a little bit, um, maybe it's some incoherence sort of lurking there somewhere. Um, and I, and I, so actually in that chapter appeal to some, some work from Barry Schwartz, maybe you've heard of the paradox of choice, right? And so as we, uh, as we get more, have more and more options, there's sort of something, it makes it harder actually for us <laughs> to make a choice. Um, that's a psychological point, not a metaphysical point, but, um, but there is something there. It's like, well, you would think that if there was something deeply and fundamentally superior about more choices, that we would also experience that, that goodness um, as the choices proliferate. Um, and, and, you know, and maybe, maybe not, maybe there's a huge difference between, uh, you know, one option and two, and then beyond two is just sort of diminishing returns. Maybe that's the way it is. But, um, but, you know, the alternative conception is this idea that what's more valuable is the ability to choose the good or, or to do, to do the right thing. Um, you know, and, and so that chapter has some cases about um, being able to, um, you know, you, I don't think um, if you are choosing where to go to college, if you're choosing uh, what to have for dinner, um, if you're, you know, choosing what kinds of hobbies to pursue, um, you'd like a few options, but it's not like you you want a hundred, you know, <laughs> when the menu is, you know, is a hundred pages, then it's just, I think it's obvious that it's, it's paralyzing and not that much fun. Um, and so then, so that, so you dial that up to 11 and it becomes a little bit less attractive. Uh, and then the, I think it's an interesting question. I think intuitions really differ on this. So take, take something like, um, you know, moral perfection. I use an example of playing uh, a musical instrument, uh, performing a piece in a competition or a recital. Um, if you there, maybe the goal is to play it perfectly, uh, with no mistakes, or maybe the goal is to, um, you know, the goal that we're all kind of working toward and will never achieve is um, mor moral perfection and always making the always making the right choice um, or even just practical wisdom. Uh, and so there, dial that up so that not only do we always make the right choice, the best choice, uh, play the right note, but um, we we actually can't, um, you know, and, and and you can imagine that we've somehow cultivated ourselves into a way that we can't, or you can imagine that there, we were going to be given the choice to, um, not, you know, so God comes down and says, hey, would you like to be perfect or not? You know, your call. And so you sort of um, make the choice to be perfect. Now there's, putting it that way opens up questions about the kind of historical component and whether responsibility traces back to that. But <laughs> but I think if you just look at the, the extremes, you can ask, well, you know, and I ask my students a lot of times, would you prefer to never be able to make a mistake, whether as a musician or an athlete or a moral, um, uh, you know, moral agent. And, you know, not everyone agrees. I mean, to me, that's an attractive uh, point. I would sort of take that deal uh, if mm -hmm. offered. Um, I, you know, the, 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 the ability to screw up is not one that's very valuable to me. Um, but I think for some, uh, they would seem as valuable. So yeah, a lot of it has to do with um, what, yeah, what it is that you want when you are, as you're going through the world and, and making choices.
That's that's so interesting. I completely have the other intuition where I I would totally choose the ability to screw up. Still, um, it like it, it reminded me of the Borges quote. I, I I might butcher it, but he says, "If I was given the choice between truth or the search for truth, I would choose the search every time." Uh, it might mm, be in yeah. might be in with respect to the Library of Babel. I don't, I don't remember what story that was, but okay. yeah. Um, that, oh, that's so interesting. It's just, for whatever reason, it's, it, I, I have like the very inescapable intuition that being able to, like not being able to fail almost takes like the fun out of something. Um, like if I, if I, in learning anything, you know, picking up a new sport, like the whole, like I, over the past couple of years, I've gotten into golf recently and yeah. it's just like, if you couldn't hit a bad shot, I don't know what the value of any given shot is, but when it's like you put in a ton of practice and you narrow kind of the range of your misses, you know, um, then when you actually just, you know, flush like a, an iron shot, it's like, okay, that like that, that was perfect. And it's only valuable because it could have been worse or sort of like, you know, it's, 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 um, I only, it's, it's weird. Like I only, I'm definitely, and maybe this is just kind of like idiosyncratic to me, but it, it also is, um, it's not fun to play a board game if you can't win or lose for me, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so I wonder if that is it, it. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. What percentage of people do you think, or like in your classes have chosen? Um, if I, if I recall, um, I mean, it's probably, I do think that the it's probably 30 percent would opt for for okay. perfection as i as i pitch it maybe so it is it is a minority um okay. and i agree with you you know if if the choice were um well you can kind of hack around out there and get gradually <laughs> better and have some moments of, of bliss but mostly uh mostly just struggle uh description of my golf game um <laughs> then or you can just plug into the matrix and get the golf module installed and then you'll be, uh, you know, be a perfect golfer. Um, yeah, I do. I do agree that there's something much more satisfying about getting better. I guess what I'm imagining is um, the, I'm a you know, so every, every golfer or, or anybody who's working or something is, is working toward that perfect endpoint. And, you know, what I'm imagining is someone who is pretty far along the path and has already, and maybe I'm cheating by doing this, but I'm imagining someone who's already sort of um, gotten themselves to a pretty good threshold. And then the option is, okay, now that you've worked at this for a while, um, do you want to just keep working at it? Um, and, or, or would you like to just sort of uh, complete the process um, and close that gap? Uh, and so, you know, and I think, and I think also too, there are, you know, I don't know, there might, this is maybe getting too speculative, but there could be ways of, of like with golf, just to continue that example, um, you know, there's, there's enough there where maybe the perfection is going to be in the, um, you know, maybe you are able to repeat your, your swing path the same time every time. Uh, but, you know, there's so much terrain and there are conditions and, just other sorts of um, things that, you know, I still think it would be, you would be, um, your scores would be incredible, but it wouldn't be like your, you know, um, hole in one um, every time as um, I think uh, Kim Jong-il, there was a press release uh, one where he 
you know, like a 36 <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah or something like that um <laughs> with you know multiple holes in one on uh, on 18 holes but anyway it wouldn't be like that I, as i imagine it you know and the same thing with um you know and i can imagine too um yeah there's I, there's different ways of if you're imagining performing a musical uh instrument performing a piano piece um you know there's there's not hitting any notes wrong which is in one sense uh perfection but then of course there's a lot that goes beyond that in terms of actually um mm. playing the piece well so you know i think um you know i think if you yeah and a lot of it which kind of go back to an earlier point that a lot of it is about what you're what you're holding fixed and how you're telling the telling the story and yeah i think if it's uh no work uh just immediate perfection versus you know kind of the fighting the good fight out there on the golf course then the fighting the good fight is much more satisfying but i think there are ways of um of working you know the ways of working up to uh, a goal and at that point you would say you know what i'm not really interested in having the option having the alternative of of flubbing this shot or making the wrong choice um, and what that tells me is that, you know, the thing I value the most is actually a certain type of performance mm. as opposed to, um, a, a just having alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I think, I think you do need to have a trajectory that's important. Um, you know, there needs to be some sort of narrative, uh, for example, um, that, that, that moves toward that perfection. But, you know, the question is when it comes down to it, as you're sort of approaching that endpoint. Would you want to just stay, would you sort of want to hang on to that possibility of error? Uh, or would you like to go ahead and cross over into, into perfection, um, having worked toward it? And I think that the answer to that question can kind of indicate, you know, some pretty deep intuitions about free will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that pretty nicely leads into chapter six, actually. Um, and so chapter six is discussing the question of whether deliberation requires uncertainty, um, which I actually kind of took that question for granted in a lot of ways before reading this chapter. Um, but, but, you know, basically, is it um, Carl, is it Guinea? Is that how you pronounce uh, it? Genet. Mm-hmm. Genet, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, sh- I, I should have gotten that having read a bunch of fr- French existentialist literature. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know it's, it's hard to, you, you never know whether to go for, the, yeah. go for that pronunciation or just uh, stick with the... Stay safe. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Genet is, you say, one of those who thinks that deliberation requires uncertainty. Um, So, if you could just kind of, you know, what what does he mean there, generally speaking? Yeah. So, Genet and Richard Taylor and others um, are of the mindset, which they take to be the common sense, and and actually they they take it to be sort of unavoidable, the view that um, there's something essential about not knowing what you're going to do. while you're deliberating about what to do. Uh, and so they, they say, look, if you, if you know that, um, uh, that you're going to, uh, uh, if you already know you're going to go golfing this afternoon, then there's really nothing to deliberate about. It's, it would just be a sham uh, as they describe it um, or a farce. Um, it's just sort of like a conceptually necessary that um, you be unsure about what's going to happen um, while you're deliberating. And then as soon as you decide, then that uncertainty goes away. And, um, and so you can still think about it and revisit your decision. But if you, 
if the decision still stands, then it doesn't count as liberation. Mm-hmm. And if it does count as liberation, then you must have sort of reopened the decision or sort of taken back the decision. So I just think that it's kind of two sides of the same coin, um, deliberation and uncertainty about the future um, are just kind of necessary concomitants. Um, so that's, that's their view. Um, if you know, if you know, uh, if there's a choice that you're looking at and you already know whether or not you're going to make it, then it's impossible to deliberate about it. Yeah. Um, and so I definitely found myself drawn to Genet's kind of, you know, um, default view, he might call it. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, so, f- I mean, I don't know what percentage of the time you think that you kind of deliberate for a significant amount of time. I don't think I, I, I think I'm on the lower side of the bell curve of deliberation about things. Like I, I usually kind of, I almost find myself having chosen in some sense. Um, like, you know, for instance, the, the choice to, um, you know, move from engineering industry to philosophy, the, choice there was almost kind of like I, I almost kind of realized I had made the choice in the process of researching programs you know what I mean and sort of like preparing to I was like oh uh, you know I, I, there wasn't sort of like a m- moment where I deliberated and then decided but um, it goes back to your point about too many choices actually being something we don't want I was accepted to multiple master's programs and there was a lot of deliberation that went on there because there's a lot of incommensurate, you know, factors about that, whether it's stipend or location or faculty or placement rate or all those things. Right. So I, I actually do think that I deliberated even after deciding on Houston in some sense. Um, I, I think, you know, cause I had Excel sheets and I had notes and I talked to like multiple people from every department and everything. And, you know, I had to cross like a bunch off the list and it came down to like a final couple. And I do think that I'm just trying to kind of like introspectively recall what that was like. I kind of do think that I had made my mind up on Houston and then went through the charade for a few days of, well, you know, uh, let's just not make the decision yet, even though it was made. But I, I think that's a very uncommon experience for me. I don't know what you think about that. Well, um, I do. I mean, I think the, I think you describing it as a charade is kind of telling because I think Janae and Taylor and others would agree that, mm. you know, you were you were going through the motions, but um, on the assumption that you already had made the decision, which you can only sort of realize in retrospect, um, because there isn't there there isn't always that sort of crystal clear moment where the decision has been made, but uh, I so I think um, I, I take the same approach a lot of times. I'm a big believer in the back burner, uh, <laughs> where I just figuratively put you know I think about whether to do something or or what the right choice is. I really have no idea, so I just sort of put it on the back burner. I tell my mind to work on it, um, and then I hope for the best, uh, or at least I set it aside for you know, 24 hours or 72 hours or whatever. And a lot of times um, when I revisit it or, well, sometimes I won't even consciously revisit it. I'll just sort of realize that a decision has been made um, or that all the materials necessary are are there now. Um, And other times I'll sort of come back to it and the, you know, the back burner will have done its work. Uh, And so I do think a lot of times, so not only are there a lot of choices that are, that are, um, either minimally uh, or not at all deliberative. Be, um, a, lot of, a lot of those happen. And then 
of the ones that are, a lot of them are sort of passively deliberative. And so it is rare that you're actually, you know, consciously weighing the reasons. Usually it requires writing something down um, to be an actual case of, of deliberation. But, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think the one of the the claim in this chapter is that um, even though that is what we all experience and how things typically go, um, the well, what, what the chapter wants to do, um, actually taking inspiration from from Taylor himself, who 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 thinks that deliberation does require uncertainty, but just to recognize that well, there's the there's the practical side of a choice and there's the epistemic side of a choice. So there's um, there's knowing what you're going to do and there's settling what you're going to do or um, you might call it epistemic settling and practical settling. And in the vast majority of cases, those come together. The way that you learn what you're going to do is by deciding to do it um, or just by doing it. And, and, and oftentimes, too, um, maybe you've had this experience where you think you've made a choice uh, or let's put it this way. You, you think you're torn. And so you decide to flip a coin. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then you flip the coin and it comes up whatever it comes up and you realize, oh no, I don't want that choice. So you, so actually you thought you were torn. You really weren't torn. You didn't realize that you had a strong preference and it was the prospect of the other choice that went against your unknown preferences that sort of brought those to the forefront. And so I think um, that's, um, you know, that's something where uh, we can, sometimes we can learn, you know, it just, that just helps sort of, I think, drive a wedge between our, um, our decision and our knowledge of, of what we're going to do. And if, if that's a real distinction, which I think it is, um, then, you know, why couldn't you, um, I mean, it would be hard. So, so the case of the coin flip is one where you've basically settled it, practically speaking, you've made the decision or like you, like you described earlier, you had kind of already, you were still deliberating, but basically the decision had already been made. Mm. Um, and so you had settled it, practically speaking, um, deliberation was over, but for whatever reason, you, your, it hadn't been epistemically settled for you. You're still trying to figure out what you're going to do, even though you've already decided. And so I think that that's a great example, the one you gave of how these can come apart where the practical settling comes first. And then it's only later that you actually learn what it is that you decided. Um, and it's strange to talk about it that way, but I think that's just sort of the way we're built. Uh, but then if it can come apart in that direction, well, why couldn't you come to learn what you're going to do uh, before you've decided what you're going to do? Uh, obviously, you can't come to learn what you're going to do by deciding before deciding. Can't do that. Uh, that's impossible. But you can learn some other way. And so I give some examples of just testimonial knowledge or kind of inductive, uh, inductive knowledge. Um, and you can just imagine, look, there's all kinds of ways of... Um, you know, you could even, maybe you could even try a time travel case here. That's maybe a little bit more contentious and controversial, but um, it just seems like there are various ways of learning what you're going to do and nothing about that learning process somehow limits you from deliberating and weighing, because deliberating is just weighing the reasons for and against uh, a particular choice. And um, usually it's unsettled both practically and epistemically what we're going to do before we make the choice. But there's no in principle reason why it couldn't be epistemically settled. Um, but still, but you could still go through the deliberative process, or at least that's what, that's what the chapter wants to argue. 
Yeah, no, I totally bought your distinction there. And it, it also seems like um, the inferential way of epistemically kind of settling, it, that struck me as very flimsy, I guess, in the sense that it doesn't, it doesn't really appear as though you do know, you know, you, you give the, um, the example of sort of, you know, you're like settling a case and there's like a bunch of settlements that have gone before you and they all settle uh, in the positive direction. And so, you know, you, you have like some good reason to believe you're the last person to settle. Well, you know, you'll probably just follow other people. I, I, I almost, I'm skeptical of that as like a, um, like if someone claimed that that was knowledge of what you would do, I'm very, very skeptical that that's a meaningful claim to make in the sense that until you have decided, like, I, I almost, I wonder if I do think it's like, it's, it is really all about the deciding the, the epistemic aspect of that seems so opaque to us. And if it happens to be right, which we probably are, we, you know, we know ourselves pretty well. So we happen to be right about it a lot, but that's not really the core of where the information or the knowledge is. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So the, in the class action lawsuit, you know, you, yeah, you imagine a thousand other uh, plaintiffs in the, in the class go in and, and hear the terms uh, of the offer and they accept it. Um, and, and so, you know, in the chapter, I claim that that would give you reason to believe uh, strong enough reason that it counts as knowledge um, that you you'll accept it as well. And you could, and, and in defense of that, I might say, well, if you, at a certain point, like if it were just someone else and you know, and you knew that this was an, an ordinary person who had no special interest in the case. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go and see everyone from one to a thousand, accept the terms. Then I think, it, I think you do have knowledge that, that this other person's going to accept. Um, and so the question would be, well, what's different about your own case? Well, maybe it's like you said, it's because it's, you're on the inside of it, that sort of blocks this, what would be enough evidence for knowledge sort of makes it no longer enough evidence for knowledge. And so I guess I would, you know, I think that that's something that's definitely uh, uh, open for, for someone to argue. And I think, I think that's maybe one way of putting the complaint is that Janae and Taylor, you know, there's no attempt to, um, to argue along those lines, you know, so it's, it's sort of like, it's, it's more just kind of, it almost functions as sort of a, a claim of conceptual necessity that's just sort of a primitive. And then there's an example given to illustrate it and that's enough. Um, and so, yeah, if there, I, um, I would be open to an argument that there's something fundamentally different about the internal perspective so that if you're, um, if someone, uh, if you see a thousand people accepting the terms, then you still can't come to know that you will, mm -hmm. um, if you haven't decided yet, um, or if someone, you know, really well, uh, you know, a best friend or a spouse tells you that you're going to accept it. Normally testimonial knowledge from someone who knows you really well would be good enough for knowledge, maybe not in this case. And so I guess um, I'm open to that. I guess mm -hmm. it would just be, what is it that, about the first person case that's different? Uh, Cause it seems like we can describe, we can describe it as in the same terms, like, um, the individual deliberating has no special interest uh, in the case. Um, there's sort of nothing about it that would that would lead anyone to believe that 
his choice would be any different from anyone else's, you know? So then you see, then you sort of just start knocking down the dominoes and, um, and then ask, well, what's, what's he going to decide? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of, I think a really great place to, to the, the sort of more work needs to be done is um, are there certain kind of path evidence paths that could give us knowledge in a third personal way, but can't, there's something sort of uh, that's impossible for them to deliver knowledge in a first personal way. Um, and maybe, you know, so maybe there is, so this connection between epistemic settling and practical settling, um, I think that there's a lot of, lot to be explored there in that connection. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing it, I also might just be kind of making a semantic quibble there because it's like the thought that I had is almost like, well, you don't really know that you will make a choice one way or another until you've made the choice. Um, but like you said, I mean, you know, pe- people, we know people really well, like you can predict with a high degree of accuracy what people will do. And obviously people includes yourself. Um, so maybe yeah. it's just, yeah, semantic. Well, that actually could be a nice way of reconciling the two views here is to say, well, look, um, those who said deliberation is impossible um, without uncertainty, what they really should have said was that um, deliberation is impossible um, once you know what you're going to do. And yeah. so, and so then you can sort of say that there's some, there's some wiggle room here in the, the strength of, of your epistemic position uh, with respect to this future choice. And so maybe, maybe there's, you know, maybe knowledge is, you know, so, and it's, I describe it in the chapter in terms of, of certainty and, um, and uh, it's typically the requirement is typically laid out as um, well, actually, I guess I kind of shift back and forth in the chapter. Um, I sort of articulate the requirement in terms of knowledge, but then I mentioned, you know, so I sort of, um, and so there's, there's maybe uh, room, um, room to wiggle there as well, because yeah, I mean, um, it could be that um, you, you have to be in a certain state uh, of uncertainty, but maybe that could count as knowledge or maybe, you know, maybe vice versa. Um, so there's, I think there's some, yeah, there's a room to kind of think about how these different concepts interact with each other in these kinds of deliberative circumstances. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So with the time we have left, uh, let's get to chapter eight, uh, because I definitely had a few questions about um, the debate about whether divine foreknowledge undermines our freedom or not. Um, yeah. So you reference uh you referenced some work by, is it Zegzebski? I always mess up. Yeah, yeah. Zegzebski. Linda yes. Zegzebski, uh-huh. Yeah. That's right. Uh, she, is she at Northern Illinois? Is that the... So she was at Oklahoma for a long oh, that's time. Right. That's right. yeah. And um, I think she has um, gone emeritus at Oklahoma. Um, okay. Yes. You're, I think you're totally right there. Yeah. Um, or maybe, maybe she's just about to, but yeah. So um, okay. Yeah, I think she's had a named chair at Oklahoma for a while. And I That's think, right. But, I listened um, to her on the Free Will Show. They they yeah. interviewed mm-hmm. her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so if you could maybe just, um, you know, in in kind of some somewhat, um, you know, at, at the level of detail that you think is required, essentially, what what is the problem of divine foreknowledge for freedom? And then I definitely have some questions about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, and I do, you know, Zegzebski wrote the entry for the Stanford Encyclopedia uh, of Philosophy on this issue, and, and I think did a really nice job of resuming the argument. And so in this chapter, I kind of offer a simplified version of that. 
and I try to isolate the different ingredients. And essentially it's just, you've got um, the necessity of the past is one important ingredient. And the idea is that, well, if you're, if you are going to do something, then God in the past has always believed that you were going to do that thing because God's omniscient knows all truths. So pick anything that you're going to do. It was true uh, before you were born. Uh, this, you know, that you're, and maybe, maybe you're sort of already bristling at, at that point, but um, you know, it seems like the way omniscience works is God somehow, somehow has knowledge of the future and not just the future, but everything in the future. And so essentially, however, whatever mechanism um, God uses to, to have those, those beliefs, they're, they're always there. Uh, and so go back to any arbitrary time in the past and God had a belief that you would do something. Um, Zagzebski uses example of picking up the phone. Um, and, and then, so that's one element is just that um, because God is omniscient and because arguably there are truths um, already out there about what we're going to do, then God's going to believe them. And then God is supposed to also be infallible and uh, in his omniscience. And so there you get a necessity of, you know, it's you know, there's sort of this necessary correspondence between what God believes and what actually happens. And so, and then there's this sort of um, somewhat complex, but I think intuitive uh, principle called a, a transfer of necessity principle. Uh, and the idea is that if you have, um, if you have something that's necessary and that sort of necessarily leads to another thing, well, then the second thing is, is also necessary. Um, and so here the, the leading to is going to be uh, a logical relation like implication. So um, if, you know, and there, because, because God's supposed to be infallible, then him believing something implies necessarily implies that that thing was true. So you've got this, this necessary belief in the past um, necessary now because uh, we can't do anything about it. It's stuck in the past. And then you've got this necessary connection between that belief and what actually happens. And so then you just sort of uh, transfer that necessity to the thing itself that you're about to do. Um, and if it's necessary that you're going to do it, then it seems like it can't be free. And so that's, that's the basic idea is you just got some, some belief in the past. It's stuck in the past. Nothing I can do about it. And it's necessary. There's sort of necessary connection between that belief and what happens in the future. And so you just sort of transfer the necessity, necessity along and you end up with um, what's called theological fatalism as opposed to logical fatalism. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've listened to a few conversations about this and it, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll venture a thought and you, I want to hear what you think about it. So it always seems like the, it just strikes me that there might be something missing in the way in which God has divine foreknowledge. Um, so it strikes me that like, if we're talking about sort of the classical um, idea of God, he's, he's kind of got three main attributes in some sense. He is omnipresent. So he exists everywhere. He's omniscient. So he knows everything, as you said. Um, but then importantly, he's also omnipotent. So he can do anything. Um, or he has the power to do anything. And it always strikes me that um, the way in which God's knowledge is infallible is precisely because he's omnipotent. So, um, you know, the reason why, um, 
and you, you talk about like how people kind of quibble with this, but like the first premise is that, you know, let's say that God believed T, T is just a proposition where something will happen. So um, it strikes me that the reason why he's infallible in his belief there is because he was the one it was slash is um, the one who's responsible for that being true. So it seems to, it seems to undermine it seems to undermine any sense of agency, but only when you add that sort of condition of omnipotence there, because it, it seems to, you know, it, the, the way that you laid it out, it seems to vitiate leeway compatibilism pretty heavily there because you, it kind of removes the, the idea that you could have done otherwise, because if God believed this and you walked through the entailment principle there, right, it sort of had to be the case, but when you add omnipotence on top, it seems to vitiate the kind of um, control that uh, that agents kind of locally have as well. Because, um, yeah, it's just be because precisely the nature by which God has infallible foreknowledge. Um, has that view sort of been kind of put forth by anyone in the debate? Well, there's definitely a lot of important intersections between... Um, between what well, well you, you could also describe it as um, an account of divine providence mm. uh, and a, an account of divine foreknowledge or divine omniscience okay. uh, and you're right that so for example one of the although it doesn't um, I, I, it, I don't talk about it a lot in this chapter but one of the historically especially contemporarily popular responses to the argument is the Molinist response uh, which says that there are these, all of these counterfactuals that are true about us. So if we were in certain circumstances, we would choose to do one thing or, or another. Um, and we would, and if the circumstances are right, then we would choose to do it freely. Uh, and so what God does, he knows all these counterfactuals and he kind of actualizes a set of them. Um, and so he sort of gets what he wants by looking at what we would do in certain circumstances. Um, and then just actualizes the set of circumstances that produces the best you know, the best combination of outcomes. And so that's often, that's often um, put forward as a solution to the problem of theological fatalism, because, well, what God knows is that if we were in certain circumstances, we would do some such and such freely. And so you sort of smuggle in the freedom that's putting it contentiously, but you, you, uh, you know, you build in the freedom into the consequent of the counterfactual and so God can know everything that we're going to do, but what he knows is that we're going to do certain things freely in certain circumstances. Um, and then, of course, there may be certain actions that he might want to bring about, but um, he can't because there's no circumstance in which we would freely do it. Or, or maybe those circumstances in which we do it would bring about some other stuff that is, you know, unacceptable. So anyway, I bring that up because that's sometimes one critique of that response to the argument is that, well... Um, that's, that's a, a really sort of comprehensive and interesting picture of divine providence, but, um, it's still, you know, it's not clear if you look at the argument there, it's not clear exactly which premise it's calling into question. Um, and so I think if you, if you are trying to preserve some, some leeway, then I think one of the, the best strategies is the, is the alchemist route, um, or you can sort of strip it down to just the, the core of it, which is counterfactual dependence. So you can say, look, God knows everything. God can do everything um, properly sort of articulated or properly understood. 
Um, and we can do otherwise. And if we were to do otherwise, then God would have had some other belief in the past. And so there's no, there's no issue with, so that there's a, um, there's a, uh, an epistemic problem if God gets surprised. Um, and then there's a, um, but there's also a, um, a power problem if, um, if God's, you know, intentions are, are violated or falsified or, or if it just his beliefs are falsified, then that's sort of a, that's kind of a power and not so much a power issue for him, but not something that we're supposed to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And so the counterfactual dependence idea kind of uh, tries to address both of those because it says, um, well, look, we can, some things we can do, some things we can't. Sometimes we have alternatives, sometimes we, sometimes we don't. Um, but the key thing is that because of this way that because in fact, because of God's infallibility, if we were to do, if you go into a different possible world where we do something else, well, in that world, God's beliefs still track the truth of what we do. Uh, if you want to put it in truth tracking terms. Uh, and so, so it's kind of like, so God's beliefs have this counterfactual dependence on, um, on our, uh, on what we do. And, you know, and then you can still say, look, if anything that God wants to make happen, he can still make happen. But um, he's also sort of his, the way he, the way he forms beliefs, but what we're going to do, whatever that is, if it's even uh, legitimate to talk about God having beliefs, uh, the way he does that is, is has this counterfactual sensitivity to what actually happens. So that there's no, there's never any issue of, of you know, falsifying belief um, or, uh, you know, or somehow violating God's God's uh, omnipotence. Yeah, that that response. I almost question if it's almost a vacuous claim, where it seems to sort of be like um, tautological in, in some sense, where it's sort of saying, okay, well, you know, it's almost defining whatever happened as the belief God would have had to have had, <laughs> um, and, and I wonder, like. It's coherent, obviously, but I don't know that it kind of illuminates anything about the debate. It's just almost sort of defining uh, whatever. Yeah, it's just defining God's foreknowledge as matching the counterfactual in a way in which I, I almost wonder if that if that seems to put pressure on his omnipotence in the sense that, I don't know, it's like, you know, um, counterfactuals almost don't seem to make sense in an omnipotent God case, because, you know, you said kind of before, like, um, well, you know, if things would have gone differently for me in this way, could have affected this person in another way. Right. But that seems to be almost contingent on things having to go some way where we're helpless, but to kind of, succumb to the way the world works for lack of a better term but if god really was omnipotent then there's almost i don't know then then that's that connection could be separable um or could be severed so uh i don't know it definitely struck me as it definitely struck me as a way out that i don't know helps anyone in the debate but also when you add that premise of omnipotence it seems to put pressure on that in a weird way yeah, so it's true that um, optimism or counterfactual dependence is not going to be um, really an account. Uh, it's not going to give you a satisfying account of any mm-hmm. divine attributes or any 
um, or any human capacities. Um, and so you're right that it's, it's it can only go so far. Um, it's it is a way of denying the the first premise uh, of the argument. So the first premise is just that this belief that God had in the past is necessary. Um, it's fixed back there in the past and nobody can do anything about it. And the reason why you can't do otherwise is because you're doing otherwise would require reaching back and altering that thing that's fixed. Yeah. And so counterfactual dependence is, um, is sort of a minimal, um, it, all that it can do, if anything, is uh, give us reason to doubt the fixity of that belief back in the past. You say it, what the what the alchemist or what the counterfactual dependence proponent says is no, no, no. You don't have to. You don't have to reach back and change anything um, because because good news, God's beliefs are special mm. and they're infallible and they exhibit this kind of counterfactual dependence. And so um, you so, you know some things you can do, some things you can't. That's a separate question, right? We're, we're not going to settle that uh, in this debate. Um, but the things that you, but the point is just, there's no special reason arising from divine omniscience. And you're right about omnipotence. Like there are certain things we can't do in because they would sort of butt up against the divine attributes in a way that, um, that rules it out for us. And that's, that's still going to be true. And so what, and this is kind of a, this I think is, um, maybe a typical compatibilist, maybe like a David Lewis style compatibilist move and say, look, um, you, you tell me what we can and can't do, or when we do and do not have alternatives, mm-hmm. like, let's just pick a common sense set. So like when I'm, you know, when I'm rolling down a hill, I have no alternatives, but when I'm walking up a hill, I do have alternatives, you know, let's just fix on a set. And then the point is that um, now if we overlay divine omniscience on top of that, that's not going to further restrict the scope of what we can do because all the alternatives that we agreed upon uh, having are still open to us. It's just, there's this funky connection. So if, um, if, if you have a belief or if I have a belief of what someone's going to do, they can act in surprising ways and they can falsify my belief. And, and so I, you know, my belief, my, my beliefs are stuck uh, in the past uh, if I formulate one now and then someone acts contrary to it in the future, then it's just that belief I had in the past became, didn't become false. Well, maybe it did, but the point is that it was false. It was violated. Um, and the cool thing about God's beliefs. Now there's no, it's not like, and this is important too. It's not like when we do otherwise, we sort of, again, we don't reach back and change God's belief. Um, it's that, well, there's a world where, there's the actual world where certain things happen. We make certain choices. And the question is at any given moment, any given choice point, can we do something that would in a sense, put us in another world? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so there's the actual way things go. Um, I suppose that depending on your view about time um, and the open future, you might disagree that there's an actual way things are going to go. <laughs> but if there is, then um, doing being able to do otherwise means that this other world is accessible to you. And in that other world, you do something differently and God has a different belief. Mm-hmm. So there's no single world where you're like changing God's beliefs. There's no single world where you were going to do one thing, but then you do a different thing instead. Um, you just always do what you're going to do. 
and God always believes that it was going to happen. But when we talk about alternatives and about God's beliefs, well, we we go to these other worlds and we notice that they have these features, which we call counterfactual dependence. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, I I'm gonna check out the recommended readings for sure about this. Um, yeah, good. Do you uh, just um? I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but do, do any of the either like the the recommended readings here or just anything you know off the top of your head? Do people, you mentioned um, divine providence and David Lewis, does anyone kind of directly address, uh, you know, freedom or agency from the perspective of, of including God's omnipotence? Well, there's the, um, so there's uh, Tom Flint, um, I think back in the nineties, maybe, maybe early two thousands um, wrote a book uh, sort of fleshing out the, the Molinist view of providence Okay. Um, I think it's just called divine providence, the Molinist account. And uh, so that's a, that's a comprehensive treatment um, of, um, of, of the Molinist view of providence. And then there are other, um, other alternative uh, accounts that are maybe more Thomistic or, um, or might, you know, or might be more, um, more sort of just straight up theological but uh, yeah, the the Flint book is a good place um, to start uh, because that's a that's that's the full account, and then within that account, he tries to explain how it solves this problem. Whereas a lot of what I recommend in this chapter is um, just starting with uh, with the argument for theological incompatibilism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there's I mean, it's you know this it's interesting. It's an interesting debate because there are some people who are just focused on well, here's the argument and here's a reason to reject one of the premises. Then there are others who actually want to want to provide an account and say a little bit more. Um, and so in some ways it kind of parallels some of the stuff in maybe the responding to the problem of evil. You know, are you just mm-hmm. trying to sort of fend off the argument or um, sort of a defense or are you trying to actually provide a full explanation, you know, for someone who wants to know why things are the way they are? Are you trying to answer that um, in more of a with more of a theodicy? Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I think that's that's a, the correct analogy for sure. Um, well, I know, yeah. So we're uh, we're definitely over an hour uh, of recording, at least. It, um, so I, yeah, from what I've read, uh, and I can't imagine the rest of the book differs. I, I will say to the audience, I highly recommend, especially for people who either just kind of like, like you said, you know, university. Uh, undergrad level or like getting into uh, a grad program. I think this is a perfect book for someone like me, for instance. Um, I can't recommend it enough. It's it's a it's a very nice kind of package of information and further reading in each chapter. So, thank you, Jordan. I appreciate your uh, your reading it and and uh, the recommendation for sure. So I'm glad you found it to be fruitful. Yeah, of course. And um, so before we end, uh, you're on Twitter. Is that kind of the best way to to get into contact with you and to follow your work? Yeah, yeah, probably so. I'm trying to be a little bit better about um, <laughs> posting more regularly on Twitter and and including more kind of um, items from the book. I did post over uh, over the spring. I kind of posted this mega thread of mm-hmm. of uh, one one tweet per chapter. Just of course, you know, you can only summarize so much in a in a tweet. But um, yeah, so I'm going to try to be putting more um, more stuff from the book there on Twitter, and uh, so that's a great place to start. Um, and um, you know, I have a a pretty sort of standard university faculty page and stuff too. I don't really have the the greatest web presence. Uh, one of the many things uh, I need to be working on. Um, but yeah, Twitter is a great place to start. 
Yeah, definitely. If only you had perfect freedom of the will with respect Indeed, to your, your online would, presence. Given that choice, I would have a perfect Twitter Twitter presence, whatever that may be. <laughs> I shudder to think, actually. <laughs> yeah, there no, there are definitely menial chores like that that I would. Well, you know, insofar as like posting as a chore, there are definitely things in that realm where I would choose to have perfect abilities, but it's because I'm not interested in it. Yeah, um, right, yeah. right. Just to tell me the things to post. So get, let's say 20 to 30 minutes a day, um, the perfect things to post for maximum impact. Um, yeah, I would sign up for that. In a yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's called having a social media manager. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, but I think that can go pretty wrong too sometimes. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> All right, Garrett, um, stay on the line for a second if you would, but thank you so much for uh, for talking with me. And again, I can't recommend the book enough. Thank you. Enjoyed it. So if you want to support this show, keep it going, help it grow, you can share it on social media or uh, Twitter specifically. You can rate it on Apple Podcasts, like or subscribe via YouTube or your RSS feed. And you can also get in contact with me. You can email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave. <laughs>